0: Um, while any one of these would make for difficult times the combination of them is absolutely unprecedented. I hardly need to mention them here but I think it's important to name them. Uh, First, uh, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. I should say that we opened the University of Richmond this uh, last week to uh, teaching our students uh, in person and some remotely. And it's been a real joy to see them again on campus. But we are, of course, still dealing with COVID-19. In addition, we've seen in the past uh, months racial unrest that is unprecedented in my lifetime, at least in the United States. Um, I've lived here since 1988. Uh, We've seen protests, we've seen violence, uh, and just a conjunction of events that are terribly um, serious and um, saddening to watch. And of course we're in the midst of uh, a very difficult economic time with unemployment rates that are the highest I've seen in my lifetime. uh, And we've just changed the nature of work and our economic system drastically in the last uh, six months. So we have three Jepson School colleagues who are here to discuss this broad topic of leadership in times of crisis. Ken Anderson, a double spider with a law degree uh, from 2020 and a Jepson degree in 2017. He served as president of RCSTA in 2016-17 and of the University of Richmond uh, Bar Association, Student Bar Association in 2019-20. Both of those were uh, challenging years at the University of Richmond. Uh, Greg of Themu, Jepson, 1999, a member of the Jepson Schools uh, Dean's uh, Executive Board of Advisors uh, and formerly of the Jepson Alumni Advisory Council. And Reagan Morris, Morris also Jepson, uh, 1999, and also a member of the uh, Executive Board of Advisors uh, and a former Executive Committee member of the University of Richmond's. Uh, Alumni Association. I'll let each of uh, these colleagues tell you more about themselves. I wanted to highlight their University of Richmond credentials. My role here, Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, is to keep the conversation going. I'll say at the outset that I'm convinced the Jepson School and the University of Richmond more broadly prepares graduates for lives of Purpose, consequence, and with the skills and fortitude necessary to meet ethical challenges of leadership. We've received some questions, and we'll work through. I'll try to work those into the conversation. Please know that you can type your questions as we go along, and we'll do our best uh, to address those. So I'm going to start uh, by asking each panelist to introduce themselves tell us about their roles as leaders, and let us know about a significant leadership challenge that they have faced during this crisis. Um, I'd like to start with Ken, and then we'll move to Reagan and then Greg. So Ken, go ahead.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, as Dean Peart said, I'm Ken Anderson, and I'm a double spider, graduated in 17 and 2020. Um, and as she said before, that both of the years where I was in student leadership roles, um, campus was sort of in turmoil. So Um, a Title IX scandal the first or my senior year of college, and then uh, we have had major issues with racial unrest starting with that, and then by March we were full COVID. Um, So just dealing with sort of those problems with listening to students and listening to administrators and all of the um, sort of the differences in opinion, I'll say that, between the two groups was very interesting to watch over the last six months. Uh, Probably the most significant moment for me with Covid and dealing with leadership in crisis was when, um, in at the end of the spring semester, a lot of schools, both undergraduate and law, and probably every other professional school, um, were deciding grading policies. So there are questions of equity and grading, where say that I'm working remotely and I live, you know, in deep in the country and my Wi-Fi is not as good as somebody else who lives, let's say, right next to a, a tower where they can receive cell service. And then the question is you know, is it fair that this person has better Wi-Fi, so they learn better? Or uh, this person is in a law school context, you have plenty of students with families. So um, there were issues with people's kids running into lectures, whereas, you know, I just graduated and I do not have kids yet. So um, I never had anybody running across my screen. Um, And just sort of, so basically dealing with students and dealing with administrators and trying to figure out some kind of a compromise on how to Set up grading. We ended up, I think, taking the most equitable route um, and had a pass fail grading system, at least for the law school. So, grateful that all worked out.
0: Thank you, Reagan. What would you like to add? Tell us about yourself.
2: Thank you, Dean Peart. I'm honored to be here today. So, uh, Reagan Morris, I'm a vice president of operations at Capital One based here. um, I'm based here in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and I uh, run um, operations within our card business, um, some of which it includes a, a global footprint of agent um, call center agents uh, across the globe, so across the country in Latin America and in Asia. Um, and I also um, lead our operation that manufactures and sends to customers uh, credit card plastic statements, letters, all of all of that mail. So. Um, You know, I I would call the challenges in this crisis since March to have been sort of an escalator of crises. Um, You would have thought that my biggest challenge in this time would have been the work we did to move thousands of agents to work at home from working in brick-and-mortar sites to work at home or shoring up our global supply chain to make sure we had enough plastics and paper and metal antennas. Um, from the different places they came. And at first I thought that was gonna be my biggest challenge. Uh, But it became clear in um, May of this year that that work paled in comparison to the leadership challenge of uh, leading an organization um, in the midst of the greatest period of social and racial unrest. COVID as a problem, I would describe as a transactional problem, right? We we uh, didn't know what was going to happen, but with, with every challenge we faced, we found a solution. Um, but the social unrest um, that we deal with as a country is a transformational problem. Um, and the, the, that is a lot harder. And so I've had to learn to lead conversations about race in the workplace. I've had to learn to teach um, hundreds of uh, entry-level people leaders how to navigate really challenging race and gender disparity conversations that they are least equipped to uh, be able to handle. Uh, And as we look into the fall, um, I think we are approaching the problem of uh, leaving uh, potentially leaving women and um, and primary caregivers behind in our workforce. And so it's been dealing with these more transformational problems that have been the biggest crisis, um, biggest part of this pr- crisis and the biggest challenge that, that I have faced um, in the last few months.
0: Thank you, Reagan.
2: I'm Craig.
3: Greg FMU and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and work for Honeywell, which is a Fortune 100 company that has tentacles in a lot of different businesses. It's a software industrial company with employees in 70 countries, and I think our latest headcount is about 110,000 employees. And so my role is to lead internal communications and global community relations, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the crises that uh, we've responded to from a COVID perspective with respect to each of those tracks and. When it comes to a pandemic, the likes of which the country and the world hasn't seen in in 100 years, there is no playbook. So all the crisis communication scenarios that you've got documented, you can pull bits and pieces, but there's none that you can turn from page one to page two and be able to follow in a linear fashion. So it's been really interesting to be able to work with a very talented team of professionals and a leadership team that was dedicated on communicating with timeliness and transparency and credibility to help fill the information void when, frankly, no one has the answers. And I think those are some of the key ingredients in having credibility and confidence of your workforce when things are so uncertain. From a community relations perspective, you know, the question arose, what is the corporate obligation to be able to help communities pivot and respond to this uh, unprecedented pandemic? And so it's been very challenging, but at the same time, very rewarding to see how an organization like Honeywell and to see all the other corporations across America and the world can turn their resources into solutions that are helping people with very, very uh, difficult and unusual circumstances that they find themselves in.
0: Thank you, um, each of our panelists. Uh, I have now a number of kind of big picture questions that I'd like to ask, uh, and then we'll turn to the Q&A that um, we received uh, from those who registered. So the first question has to do with what we've done to ourselves um, over the last six months with uh, mandates to wear masks and behave in various ways to keep ourselves safe, and it brings to mind uh, the the always present um, uh, tension between democrat democracy, democratic values, and leadership. It's something we talk about a great deal at the Jepson School, uh, and uh, we're seeing it play out in ways that are much more stark, I think, now than um, you know ever in the past. Well, perhaps not ever, but at least in recent past uh, in the United States. Uh, and I thought, um, Ken, since you've got a double degree in leadership and also in the law, and have been thinking about such int- uh, such issues, you might like to give us um, your views on the potential conflict between democracy and leadership. And you know, is there a role for both, um, uh, even though the tension exists?
1: Sure. Um, so over, I guess, the whole course of the COVID or, you know, the COVID era, um, I've heard a lot of people ask questions regarding, let's say, the mask mandate or closing businesses for a spe- specific amount of time or people standing too close to them. Whatever the scenario, um, that this is sort of new and that you know, people's rights, Some people feel that their rights are being trampled on. Others feel that people aren't doing enough and then there's the question of what do we do about the tension between the two groups because we all have to live together and with the pandemic we are for the first time you would think uh, be on the same side, human race versus the virus rather than divided um, and of course this goes along with the fact that our country is probably more divided now than it has been in a long time but I will not get into that. I promise the Dean that I will not get into that. Um, but um, I think that there is a tension between democracy and then, of course, the role of leadership um, in a democratic society when dealing with a large problem like a pandemic. Um, So you're always going to have collective action problems because people in a free country, you know, have different thoughts. Um, So I think about this in that it is probably America's oldest problem in that we've always had sort of this individualism that Really defines us across the world. So, Americans are taught from a very early age that you are special and that um, you get to make your own decisions. And there are a lot of positives to that. And I think it's made our country great as a result. Um, however, um, I do think that at times we have sort of lost a collective spirit that maybe would allow us to attack the pandemic, not just from a leadership perspective, but from a societal um, perspective. So, the first example that makes me, uh, that comes to mind for me is something that, again, we can all agree on. That America's greatest generation um, prepared for World War II um, and immediately collectively acted to fight a common enemy. Um, So this time again, our enemy is not people; it is a disease. But um, the fact that Americans, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, uh, people from rural areas, people from cities, all got together and were required to do—they were actually mandated by leadership to really change their lives. So rationing, you know, happened, and I almost—I can't imagine what. what our society would be like if we were required to ration sort of in this time period just because people are uncomfortable with sort of lower risk and lower effort um, activities like wearing a mask. Um, so again, neither, um, I, I guess both the debate is gonna be there as long as the pandemic continues. Um, and I do think also um, over, and um, Reagan mentioned this earlier that there have been, um, you know, issues within our country of um, discussing the role of privilege In different parts of society and then privilege can also be applied to the pandemic as well so those again with the best Wi-Fi who happen to you know have a great space to work um, the concept of work from home in itself is somewhat of a an individual um, benefit that really does not um, you know spread out and go to everybody Um, and also the fact that for the first time I think with leadership we're finding that the pandemic has become a political issue, so there is one side saying that we don't need to wear uh, masks all the time, and there's one side saying we have to wear masks all the time. There's one side disputing the facts of the other, and so the American people are really faced with the problem of not necessarily agreeing on the reality or the truth or the science behind our current problems, and I think that that's probably an extra challenge for leaders who are now in power and those running four seats right now, and you know, we'll see what happens in November, but um, I could go on for a while. But
0: <laughs> it's a really complicated question, so thank you, Ken, that's, that's very interesting. One of the things I've noticed about uh, how we're uh, dealing with this at the University of Richmond, where, of course, we're you know, a very small community, but we're also trying to um, have people uh, obey uh, you know the rules of uh, now living at the University of Richmond, is we're really stressing in our messaging, and and I imagine many of you have seen this, um, this notion that we are one community and we're interrelated, and our actions, one person's actions, affect another person's you know risk of um, of, of uh, getting the disease. Um, economists call that I'm an economist call that an externality. You know, my my choice to wear a mask um, doesn't simply affect my own risk of getting the disease, but also someone else's. So at any rate, all the the messaging at the University of Richmond is one web or protect our web, you know, and, and about this this community, and, and that's one way to use social pressure um, to get people to think about the fact that we are interrelated. I want to turn to um, uh, Reagan's experience and this this enormous transition that she's led. So, uh, from a question about our behavior and and uh, how we're you know dealing with COVID to we, the fact that we've redefined work, as you said, Ken. Um, uh, well, I'm not sure we've quite redefined it, but we've certainly reorganized it, um, and we have redefined it at least in some ways. Um, uh, we've we've uh, transitioned to this to a situation where so many people are now working at home, working from home, uh, and and uh, those who led that sort of transition, I did at the Jefferson School, Reagan did uh, at Cap One. Um, Uh, Reagan, I'd like you to perhaps discuss how your leadership style um, and attributes um, adapted and changed as you were uh, leading this transition and you I think it would be helpful as well if if you do bring in the context of of the discussions about race as well. How did you adapt to the ethical challenges of of, uh, doing this uh, and faced with a situation where your workforce uh, spans many different um, constituencies and government um, uh, areas, that is, you know, local and, and state legislatures. Um, so lots of stuff going on there, Reagan, and I'd, I'd be really interested in your comments about your leadership style and, and um, as I say, characteristics that helped you work through that.
2: Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, that's a, it's an incredibly important question. Um, sh- and, and I will share that um, my journey on, on this has been incredibly personal. It's been a personal leadership journey. Um, I, at the beginning of the pandemic in those uh, first couple of weeks, uh, weeks in March, there was so much to do, right? You had, there was tactical work that needed to be done. We had to figure out how do we move 6,000 agents from being in a site to being at home and enabling them to do that with technology and processes and support. Um, there were policies that needed to be debated. There were, you know, pay, um, issues of pay and, and equity, all that had to be debated. And it was a nearly 24-hour a day pursuit. And, and that's just my job. I can imagine everyone on this call had their own version of that. Um, and you know, I will say that I was really focused at the beginning on doing. Um, and really worried the whole time that I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't working hard enough. I wasn't putting enough hours in. I wasn't focused on the right things. Right? It was very much a doing mentality. Um, and at some point, that sense of I'm not doing enough. I'll never do enough became overwhelming. Um, and and in the in the face of that, on my personal leadership journey, like I had to pivot. And because I knew, and I knew thanks to my amazing training at Jepson that. Um, leading isn't about doing. Leading is about being. It is about who you are, not what you do. Um, and so I very intentionally pivoted, because I found myself completely overwhelmed by never doing enough. So so I pivoted um, to the being part of leadership. Um, and in a lot of ways, it, it, it then took all of my time. Um, it was about prioritizing the things that often I would put lower on my priority list. Um, check ins daily with every person on my team, check ins with leaders, check ins with working parents. And, and that just sort of continued on through the face of the pandemic. So, this, this shift um, from doing to being um, really helped uh, my leadership style is very much about how do I create an environment in the midst of all of this chaos uh, where uh, we have psychological safety on my team. Uh, where we have open, transparent, authentic conversations because that is where you get the good work of leadership done. And I will tell you that at first I was really worried because we have a system of rewards and compensation that oftentimes is focused on doing, not on being. Um, and so I got a little worried about, okay, well, if I if I am just a leader, if I am just a leader, if I'm just here for my people, but I'm not doing all of these things, like how's that gonna look compared to my peers in the system that we're in? And I realized, again, another principle that I learned at Jepson, which is I needed to reconnect with my purpose. Um, and my purpose wasn't just to do a bunch of things, it was to be a great leader, and I, um, I have this extra purpose of championing, championing the cause of our low wage earners. Because I have a heck of a lot of agency in this world and a heck of a lot of privilege to be an executive at a top bank in this country. And yet I was representing the voices of folks to Ken's point that that maybe didn't have the great Wi-Fi, didn't have the institutions to support them. And so my purpose shifted to less about my rewards and recognition. And how do I um, put forward the cause to champion our lowest wage earners in our in our company and make sure that through policy questions um, and um, the big the big questions and the small questions. Uh, we could focus on uh, the needs of of folks maybe who are struggling uh, far more than me in in this new world and this new economy um i had forgotten that i had agency to change the system um and uh that was something that when i pivoted to that i was able to sort of reground so my leadership ch- um style changed pretty significantly through the through the journey and so so now if you you know if you know if if um If measured on where I spend my time on my calendar, it used to be big blocks of meetings. I would travel all over the place do town halls. um, And now it's much more about connecting individually one-on-one. It's still incredibly important to share context it's still incredibly important to create an open, transparent environment where people can thrive, but I'm doing that on a much more individual basis than I was before. Um, and I think that that pivot has been um, important. Uh, the last thing I'll, sh- I'll share is, um, you know, we are doing this, I had the opportunity to do this on a global scale, which is has been a really interesting, has made me really question uh, human equity in all of this, right, in the United States, we're so privileged and we, uh, work with um, with with people in the Philippines um, and in Latin America, where the government policies are very different um, than ours in the U.S. And uh, you know whether it's I have an agent in Lincoln, Nebraska, that uh, can be in an office and doesn't have to wear a mask. Do so I have one in the Philippines where it's government mandated to wear a mask and a shield and do their job every day? And we all show up on Zoom video calls together. And it looks very different. And it just—I I can't say I have an answer. I don't have an answer to that. But it illuminates the problem um, and the fact that we're, you know, the human problem that we have, and that this this pandemic touches all of us. So, um, so those are some of the challenges um, that we faced, and and how I've had to pivot um, my leadership style to accommodate them.
0: That's fascinating, Reagan. Um, one of the things that I found uh, during the summer, I think, is is in, in Consonant with what you just mentioned, I, I was exhausted um, throughout most of the summer. I, I worked very long hours, and when I wasn't working, I was always thinking about what I needed to be doing. And so that's exhausting, but that's sort of normal for, for me. It's probably normal for you. Um, but, but what was new, I think, was that uh, the one on ones, and not one on ones actually in person, but by Zoom, and just a lot more reassuring. Uh, was needed in the context of a lot of uncertainty. Um, then um, you know, if, when you're a group in a building and you can all kind of talk and laugh and so on, much less um, n- need for being nurtured uh, than we saw during the summer. So uh, I think I I think I understand how you shifted because uh, many of us probably did, uh, including myself. Um, uh, I want to shift to the future. So I want to be a little bit hopeful as we think about this and, and um, you know, we will come out of COVID-19 as well as our other challenges. We can hope um, we will have a, a, you know, an election. We will have a, um, uh, I hope, uh, a reconciliation thinking about um, uh, some of our racial issues and so on. Um, uh, as we come out of COVID-19 and the economic uh, recession that we're in now, um, you know, there will be winners and there'll be losers. Uh, and uh, I think it'll be important to think about what what will leadership look like at the end, at the other side of this pandemic and this other side of this economic situation. So, Greg, I know you've been thinking a lot recently, or I, I think you have been thinking a lot recently about how to lead into the future, how to lead your organization going forward, how to make sure that um, Honeywell's one of the winners going forward and as many of your employees are um, going to come out of this better than um, uh, as opposed to um, losing in the future. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to us about how to prepare to lead in the future.
3: Yeah, I'll definitely take my best shot at it. I think it's—I uh, think it should be etched on the wall in Jepson if it's not already. But a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And what an extraordinary crisis we found ourselves in when COVID erupted across the world earlier this year. You talked about some of the other crises that we're facing right now, both here in the US and abroad. And I think the most amazing thing about this, and it is uplifting, is to see the creativity that's been born out of all of these crises, um, particularly with the pandemic. Uh, in- Honeywell, for example, we have you know, several different business units, and if I think about our aerospace business, which uh, creates everything for an airplane, uh, and our parts are on every single aircraft virtually that, that fly around the world every day, and to think about a, our research and development team that came up with the concept of a gull-wing device that would go down the aisle of an aircraft cabin, much like a very elaborate um, Doc Brown from Back to the Future version of the beverage cart and it has UV light that actually disinfects the plane in 10 minutes from, from front to back. Technologies like that and, uh, and thinking about our, our chemicals business, which takes uh, some new, fa- new chemical chemically composed material that is actually better than glass for preserving medicines like vaccines, which we're going to need in massive quantities uh, to be able to overcome this pandemic. Um, you know, glass breaks and it has spoilage um, factors that may limit its effectiveness. But with some new materials, we have things that, you know, will transport much easier to the most remote, remote corners of the earth and actually last a lot longer. And so a lot of these ideas have been born out of necessity and, and you can see it both in large corporations and, and how they're turning towards new technologies and embracing what they have uh, in terms of talent and material and turning that into solutions, but also, you know, all the way down to the small business level. One of the really interesting and rewarding parts of my year has been a $2 million philanthropic fund that Honeywell created here in Charlotte, North Carolina, in which we were backing small businesses and and giving out grants for small businesses, not to make payroll, not to make rent, but instead to be able to innovate and adapt to the COVID challenge so they could serve their customers and get back on their feet faster. And so I think about a young man in California who had uh, elderly parents who ran a dry cleaning business in Charlotte, and he actually applied online, and he was able to secure a grant for his parents so their dry cleaning business could turn towards mobile pickup and delivery. So they got a vehicle they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford, and new uh, devices that help them create greater disinfection quality on the garments that they're cleaning. And then everyone here has adapted as well as you've gotten takeout or delivery, and you've seen large companies like ride-sharing companies turn towards grocery delivery. So even down to your grocery store, which you know used to be for me a terrible uh, slog to have to go through the aisles and try to find things. And now every grocery store from the biggest to the smallest, they've all got curbside delivery. And I don't think the world's ever gonna go back quite the same way again. So I think there are a lot of really interesting things in, in the corporate world, small business. Um, I think you're seeing houses of worship find new ways to bring their congregations together at this time and do so in really innovative ways that kind of sets convention and tradition aside in many respects and just tries to get the job done in these really difficult times. So there's examples all around us, and I think those are the ones that we need to hold up and embrace and celebrate and create more energy around so we can continue to knock down some of these challenges throughout the rest of this year and certainly well into 2021.
0: Thank you. Um, that's absolutely fa- fascinating. And I'll just say, you know, Again, my economics background coming through, but also I think it's just a, a way that I'm put together. I do think, um, you know, we are innovators. All of us are innovators, and and um, I I have a, enough optimism to think that we will come through this with some really interesting products. You just gave us some some fascinating ones. One I'll I'll mention. Uh, I don't know. It's not a new product, but it's a new idea. Um, uh, so. At the University of Richmond, we have um, purchased modular housing. Who would think that you know the trailer that you saw when you were in second grade or whatever because your school couldn't fit all the students into it? we'd actually use this idea of having trailers or modular housing, um, uh, they're, they're better than trailers, um, but modular housing on campus where we can isolate and quarantine our students. Um, so we had them delivered to the campus and, and uh, we're doing grab-and-go meals and just all sorts of ideas that people uh, have come up with. The tent that's outside Jefferson Hall in which I taught part of my class on Friday afternoon uh, because it allowed us to Actually, we're six feet apart, and so to remove our masks and have a conversation where we could see each other's faces. Uh, so I, I, like you, I have uh, real trust that um, you know we will innovate going forward, um, and I hope that we can um, you know keep keep that sort of pot. And of course, the most important set of innovations will be in healthcare uh, in terms of vaccination and treatments. Uh, we've seen a lot of progress in both areas, um, uh, but especially in treatments. Um, already. Um, I want to turn to some of the questions that we received uh, in, in the registration process and then there's some that we've received uh, today. So um, uh, uh, there's, there are a couple of questions that I'm going to put together. Um, one of them uh, mentions Richmond, our, our um, local leadership, and one mentions national leadership. And I guess what I would like to, the way I'd like to combine this is to just ask, and I'm going to direct this one toward Ken, um, uh, um, for examples that you might want to, uh, or comments you might want to make, um, or examples you want to give us of uh, international or national or local leadership that you have found to be particularly striking during these crises.
1: Sure. Um, so I think that we've, we've seen, um, striking leadership for good and for bad. And again, you know, I guess that depends on where you fall on either the political spectrum or just in your life and watching the way that, you know, your, um, company executives handle, uh, the pandemic. Um, but I think that, um, it's, it is a tough question for sure. Um, and I think that really, um, Instead of go, just so that I, I don't uh, go into sort of a partisan storm, I think that probably the best characteristics to have maybe during a pandemic, if that's safer. Um, and I think that like, charisma is crucial um, in times like this because you need somebody who's going to rally people um, to, do either, you know, to do the right thing and to make sure that we're not uh, spreading this any more than we have to. Um, and also um, transformational leadership. So Reagan mentioned earlier just about the fact that we are entering, and uh, Greg did as well, just looking forward, we're going to enter into a a brand new world. Um, So watching sort of the, um, I can think of some notable examples of people who have really been championed by, I think people on both sides, but Governor Cuomo out of New York, I know that his broadcasts are well watched by people who voted for him and people who didn't. Um, And I know that he's at least given, you know, aspects of what seems to be strong leadership. I've not been following that. Um, Here in Richmond, it it has been nice to see that we've had lower numbers uh, than the rest of the nation, and it's been nice to see that um, there was definitely a mask initiative early on and ensuring that um, businesses were um, at least being listened to uh, somewhat by city government and by the state government to ensure that um, things were not going under and people's lives weren't being affected. Sorry for the pivot, but... (laughs)
0: Thank you. Um, I, I want to uh, read a question now from, uh, that, that has come in that I think is an important one. Um, so this is from an alum who writes, uh, in this time, the issue of self-care and trauma have come up. How do you lead around the issue of self-care for those you lead? What have you done related to the trauma exposure of your employees and followers? How have you led in managing your own trauma exposure And caring for yourself. So there's actually several questions there, of course. Um, Maybe I'll ask Reagan and then Greg, because both of you, I think, have have uh, had to deal with this. um, Some to um, take a stab at that one.
2: Yeah, uh, that is that's a an important question. It's a tough question. Um, You know, I think the I think for me, what I have what I have done, what I've chosen to do, and it, it seems to work. Um, is to, uh, to model the way and to be there. So when you think about self-care, um, you can't uh, ask your team or, or your followers to employ good habits of self-care and take breaks and do your yoga and you know, uh, take time away if you're not doing that yourself. Uh, and so uh, again, in this you know, early on, it was, it was hard to even think about. Logging off early or taking vacation, and yet that was the very thing that we all needed. Uh, through this, um, I have uh, made sure that I kept up with those practices myself. Um, but you know, it's, there's been this interesting uh, phenomenon where somebody will come to me and in a in a state or in a really having a really tough day, and we'll get into a conversation. There's always some triggering event, something that's triggered the the unhappiness. Um, but through the course of the conversation, I'll say. When's the last time you took a day off? When's the last time you um, shut your computer down at five o'clock? And without exception, every single person said, oh, I've worked every single day since March. I couldn't even think about taking a day off. And, And so the conversation would shift from what the triggering event was to how are you taking care of yourself? And if you can't care for yourself, you can't lead other people. Uh, and so that has been a big focus of mine to make sure that uh, folks are um, employing practice of balance and that I'm modeling the way and I'm talking about it. Because when it, if it's okay for me to take the day off, it's okay for you to take a day off and we all do it together. And this it's something I have to reinforce with my teams all the time. And then on the second question around trauma, what a, what a great um, insight to how people are feeling right now. Um, I think that you just have to be what I have, have tried to be is, is open and transparent and vulnerable. Um, and, uh, I've in, in the last, even in the last week, I've led a couple of, 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 uh, conversations about racial inequity, uh, in, um, people's lives and in our country and in our company and how people are feeling. And those have been the hardest conversations that I've ever had to lead in my life. Um, and, um, I think that by being open about my story and by um, being vulnerable about the fact that I'm learning um, and being vulnerable that I have recently realized that I am the product of far more privilege than I ever understood and that I'm still learning about the different ways that I'm the product of privilege I didn't even realize I had. That that creates an environment where other people feel more comfortable to share their own stories and their own journeys, and that's how you heal together. Um, So I think you just have to do it locally. You have to start small. If you ever try to take a huge bite of that elephant, I don't think it'll work. Um, And you just have to do it, uh, is my best advice.
3: I think uh, Reagan had very eloquently uh, at the beginning of her comments about granting grace to those that you work with and granting grace to yourself, just as importantly, especially during times of crisis. Um, So I won't be, I won't belabor that point, but I will say the two words that come to mind, um, one of which is poise, and I think the Jepson School and the University of Richmond's uh, academic structure and model really supports uh, graduates to be able to go out there and manage difficult situations with poise, and then credibility and authenticity, and um, that credibility I think is really important. Um, In the case of poise, you know, we had, again, something that the world hadn't seen in a very, very long time, and the circumstances were um, were so unusual that you saw very different behavior than you would expect. Even when you think about some, sometimes some of the worst behavior you would expect to see, maybe at a ball game after um, you know, right before they close off the beer taps, you're seeing that behavior when there is a brand new shipment of Charmin in the grocery store and piled to the ceiling, and it just looks like a free-for-all. So never thought we'd see that in our lifetimes. But at the same time, you saw people perform with you know, amazing poise, and it could be in all sorts of organizations from nonprofits to the courts, to our law enforcement, to the corporations, uh, and certainly the schools. And uh, that's a group that's well-trained and poised. So I think I've been really impressed by those who've been able to uh, keep their feet under them as the, uh, as the situation started to deteriorate from a pandemic standpoint. Um, And then to talk a little bit about credibility and authenticity, when you think about the racial unrest in the U.S. and the calls for greater racial justice and equality, I think the thing about authenticity is is you've got to be yourself and stick to the values that you were raised with and that were instilled in you. If you had the good fortune to be around smart, talented people like we all did at the University of Richmond, I think you bring that to bear on situations that down the line can be fraught with uh, peril if you don't handle it the right way. You know, I remember reading stories as uh, as the spring moved into summer about companies that were imploring their managers to go in and reach out every single day to all African American colleagues and to make sure that they were okay and, and it took a beat for people to realize well maybe not everybody wants to be reached out in that way by managers of all different um, you know colors and creeds and orientations and what have you and so you know be authentic have the tools at your disposal that you can have uh, you can have productive conversations and supportive conversations. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. And I think that's one of the great things that came out of the Jefferson curriculum is there's no cookie cutter in terms of being the perfect leader. Everyone has within them the ability to lean on those tendencies that have others gravitate towards them and to, again, move towards a greater purpose. Uh, Thanks very much. So
0: I I just want to reiterate some of the words that I've heard. So open, transparent, authentic, credible. Um, And uh, I want to ask and poise. um, Those are all great. So thanks very much. Um, And I just want to ask, are we missing anything? So if we were to describe the leader who will or the, or the leaders, let's face it, there are many of them, uh, who will help us emerge from these crises. Um, are there any characteristics that, um, of leadership that beyond those that we should be looking for? Um, maybe I'll ask Ken, You he can go back to his original question about political leaders. Does that describe them for you, Ken, adequately?
1: I think so. Um, definitely with an emphasis on compassion and listening just because we can all, it's sort of like freshman year of college where everybody gets to campus and nobody's done this before. Um, so we're all sort of working from the same start line where we need to listen to each other. And of course we have all these existing problems. So uh, racial discord and other inequities and, um, you know, every the kitchen sink. Um, the fact that we're all, I think that the fact that we're all dealing with a common enemy, which is the virus. It is the perfect sort of scenario for um, unity. And I think that if uh, leaders capitalize on the theme and message of unity and then actually really act on the theme of unity, we are going to be in much better shape and we'll be able to look to the future a lot faster.
3: Thank you. Add, diplomacy, I think um, that seems to be a trait and, a, and an ability in scarce supply these days especially in a highly politicized year like a presidential election here in the US. To be able to handle all kinds of situations that you may be confronted with in a crisis with diplomacy and be able to broker accords and at least compromises between differing factions, I think that's really valuable. And um, I, I've been gravitating in recent months towards those who excel in that capability.
0: That's good, thank you.
2: Reagan, anything you would add? I would add, um, I would add servant leadership. Um, I just, you know, a leader to me is a servant first whose purpose is to ensure that the needs of of other people are being met. Um, And the beauty of servant leadership is that it doesn't require any special title to be bestowed bestowed upon you for you to practice it. And I think as we heal, as, as we try to heal as a nation and a global community, like we need everyone to pitch in. We can't rely on um, others, um, and others in some position of, of, of specific authority to help, help us. Um, and I believe the concept of servant leadership in the democracy, the democratic values that anybody can lead, if only you can see beyond yourself and serve the needs of others, is, um, is, uh, is underscoring what both Ken and Greg shared, and I would, I would add that on too. So that's like the perfect leader that can do all of those things.
0: Thank you. Um, not asking very much out of any one of us, right? <laughs> um, uh, I, we have a number of uh, questions in the Q&A that have to do with um, leading discourse on racial injustice. And so I'd like to read them so that we all have them uh, in, front of, in our minds. Um, one has to do with how, how one might address racial discrimination in a large corporation and not encounter backlash. A second uh, colleague remarks, one of the struggles I'm facing is how to be a responsible leader in the midst of public discourse on racial injustice. I'm working to educate myself on how to be as anti-racist as possible, but I'm keenly aware of what it means for a person coming from a place of privilege to be trying to take on a leadership role in this area. Um, She asked, do any of you have experience, and we know now that Reagan does, in successfully leading productive initiatives in diversity work that leverage the privilege of some while also amplifying the voices of people of color. And then we have one final one that I I saw, which um, uh, asked uh, directed at Reagan, Um, but I would like um, Ken and Greg to weigh in on these as well, uh, if they have remarks. Reagan indicated during her introduction how she has been compelled to teach about race in the workplace as a result of the recent racial unrest in the country. How is your current approach different to what you did regarding this issue prior to the racial unrest? Um, perhaps start with Reagan and then move to Greg and Ken. Yeah.
2: Thank you for those questions. And I'm in no way an expert here. Um, I, I have I felt at the beginning of this woefully unprepared um, to address these conversations that were popping up um, because, I mean, how can you? It, this is so, this is the hardest that I never I never thought I would be openly talking about race in corporate America. Um, it, race has always race, gender, politics, uh, gender a little less so. That's been more a topic of conversation recently, but race and politics have always been the third rail in my experience in, in corporate America, and you just didn't talk about it. And you sort of, t- you didn't sort of, be, I, I let me not generalize this, I would turn a blind eye to the conversations around race because I didn't know how to start them. But the, the reality is that um, they're happening and we, we couldn't, uh, as a result of that, I think our leaders um, often, um, so when you think about an organization that I work within, in um, call center organization, your entry-level leader, um, we haven't always um, spent a lot of training dollars on our entry-level leaders preparing them. To tackle big conversations of, of race and social unrest and inequity. And one of the biggest shifts that we have made is we have, you know, typically the way sort of training dollars are dispersed in organization is some of the most senior people who have the biggest organizations get the biggest budgets for training. And yet, the place where these conversations are happening that I see are um, in small conversations at an entry level in a call center where somebody maybe um, you know, maybe a customer called in and with really ugly words and remarks um, directed toward that call center agent, and that mo- in that moment, the conversation needs to happen. And so one of the the shifts that I've seen us make is um, start to train and prepare our entry level leaders and give them tools imperfect as they may be, tools to figure out how to have these conversations. Um, And so, you know, that's what I have seen. It is incredibly hard to talk about this stuff in corporate America. I think you've got to start the the challenges you have to start before ahead of time, right? You have to create an environment of psychological safety where people feel like they can contribute to the conversation and not be penalized for it. Like You've got to have that before you can have one of these conversations. Um, So you got to start early, and the best time to start is yesterday, and the next best time is today (laughs) to create an environment of psychological safety with your team so you can um, start to help people navigate these really tough conversations. But the key is investing in training and learning um, at the the entry level um, of leadership. Thank you. Okay.
3: I'll build on what Reagan said. In addition to uh, training, which I think is invaluable, it's also the, the structure and the structure that, that organizations put in place to signal that this is important to us. It, it's related to our values, it upholds our values. And I think uh, you've seen a lot of organizations come out, uh, some of whom, as you watch the news or you read statements, you thought, well, this seems a little opportunistic. And in other cases, you'd hear the words and you'd see the examples of, uh, of how those principles are put into play inside an organization with their stakeholders and say, this feels credible and authentic. And when you think about organizations that wear their politics on their sleeves and their, and their social causes on their sleeves, like the Ben and Jerry's, um, part of bigger conglomerate now, but they haven't changed one bit. You've seen organizations surprise you, ones that came out with statements after you know after the racial unrest really started to bubble up this year and said, we actually care a lot about this and we're not going to stand for it. And here's what we're going to do. And it's not just about cutting checks um, out in the community, but you can follow the money inside inside an organization and see where are those resources being deployed and um, are there is there enough being devoted to to inclusion and diversity efforts and initiatives and structures inside an organization that help employees feel like there is a safe space to go. Uh, be heard and to feel like they can contribute to a productive conversation. And so I think there's been a lot of opportunity for that uh, this year, because as Reagan pointed out, this is the time for, for these conversations to happen. It's, it's not a nice to have, it's a must have in virtually every organization that has people of all different walks of life working there or contributing to that organization.
0: Thank you. Ken, you had some experience with this. uh, Yes. Um,
1: Mm -hmm. so um definitely this spring and then i think just generally so the concept of allyship and now that it's in sort of the public um, conversation um it's a tightrope walk right so i think it's a tightrope for black folks i think it's a tightrope for white folks i think it is a tightrope for everybody right um and it is it is challenging to figure out am i doing too much or too little um but i do think that in sort of understanding people that are different than you no matter if it's racial if it's gender-related, if it's sexual orientation, if it's nationality, I think that sort of establishing personal relationships and then seeing through, understanding, I guess, the person's background while also recognizing their humanity at the same time um, creates the sort of personal and corporate relationships that I think start to at least solve the problem or, you know, save you from that misstep or that statement that shouldn't have been said or something like that. Um, And I think that also so. Um, somebody, I think it was Greg earlier, who said, you know, don't send an email to all of the um, black colleagues in the corporation. I do. Th- I've seen quite a few memes on the Internet of people saying, you know, you can Google this. And then this is the question that you do ask your black friend or your Asian friend or you know some other non-white friend. Um, and I think that it, it sort of it requires work, I think, on the part of everybody to do the independent research and reading the sort of the canon of not just anti-racism, but also specifically with the racial unrest that we've seen, reading up on Black culture and really getting to cultivate relationships with people who are in completely different circumstances with you. And I think from there, we'll, we'll progress. And if we don't, we're going to see the exact same thing that we've been seeing up to now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, uh, we, we're getting close to the end of our time, but there's one question that I want to mention uh, and ask you to briefly comment on Uh, which has to do with the length of these crises, in particular COVID-19. Do your roles, leadership actions, and messages change as COVID lags on and on? It seems that many people increasingly feel malaise just given the weight of time and uncertainty, uh, very different than six or four or even two months ago. How do you pivot as we go into another stage of an ongoing saga? Maybe I'll ask Greg to start with that one.
3: I think there's two two things you can use to counter that malaise that may grip you as you're in you know the untold month of, of this pandemic. And you know, I come from the public relations discipline, so I think constant communication is so important. And just because the cases seem to be coming down where you live or globally, that doesn't mean we're through the woods yet. And so you've got to keep your stakeholders, whatever kind of organization you're a member of, keep them informed let them know how you're adapting to, you know, to this uncharted territory that, that we're in. And then you know, beyond that, I think there is really an opportunity from a communication standpoint to make sure you're telling the good stories that come out of adaptation to or response to the crisis. And so you, know, you hear about them in your community, about people who have uh, taken care of neighbors who were ill-equipped to take care of themselves or people who lost child care. Um, because they couldn't bring somebody into their home or drop somebody off at, at childcare, care the school was providing meals or after-school services, and you see other people coming to their rescue. I think those stories need to be celebrated because um, I think goodwill and, frankly, love beget more of that same behavior in others. and uh, And even in organizations that are for-profit, like corporations, you're just seeing amazing creativity that is inspiring to others. And I think if you tell those stories, I think that's the antidote to a lot of the negativity that you may feel in being in uh, a long protracted uh, crisis such as we're in right now.
0: Thank you. Uh, Reagan or Ken, you wanna add to that? Ken. Um,
1: Let's see. Um, I I actually didn't have anything that was direct.
2: That's all right. I had an inspirational response which was plus one to what Greg said.
0: <laughs> I think Craig is the optimist among us, and, and uh, I will say it's very much in line with what he said earlier, and, and also I think with my own uh, sense that now people are basically fairly good. This is a, it's a, a series of very difficult crises. The one thing that I think is, is particularly hard about COVID is it it causes us to remove ourselves from each other, uh, and we're social creatures. Uh, and that uh, I think that removal um, is is gets harder as the months go by. Uh, but Greg, I think you're absolutely right. You, you now see the first first example I saw of this was I think sometime in June. You know, so several months after we shut everything down, and um, I was out for my evening run, and you know we weren't supposed to go near anyone. We I think I had a mask on even at that point, um, and. There were some neighbors in the neighborhood, several cul-de-sacs away from me, um, people I, I don't know, but um, who had brought lawn chairs into the cul-de-sac and were each sitting 10 feet apart from each other, having a conversation because they just couldn't stand another evening of being alone. Uh, and you know, I think that one of the leadership challenges for all of us is overcoming that loneliness, helping our employees or our colleagues, our students, whatever, make sure they're not isolated, make sure we don't lose people because of the terrible isolation. Um, But there is a natural tendency that I think um, helps counter that, which is that we are all social creatures, uh, and and, uh, we will find ways to be together. Um, The second example I will give of this, and it's a bit of a humorous one, but um, my... Uh, one of my two sons um, uh, met and became involved with uh, a young woman recently and the thing that they did together is they went shopping for groceries, wearing a mask uh, in the local grocery store because that's all that you know one could really do back in March. Um, and so I don't know if it will be a, a romance that lasts forever, but at some point they will have, a if it does, they will have a very funny story to tell uh, about how they you know, got to know each other in the middle of COVID-19 uh, while shopping for groceries. Um, we are at the end of our time. Uh, I'd like to close this by thanking each of our panelists, Ken, Reagan, and Greg. I think you've done a wonderful job both of um, giving us lots to think about, uh, giving us some optimistic thoughts, telling us about some hard things that you've done, and about the, the leadership and ethics less ethical uh, lessons that we can take out of these challenges. Um, so, uh, please, um, uh, I hope all of our audience will join me in thanking you. They can join me in thanking you remotely. Um, I would uh, remind our alumni that they can check out the Richmond Alumni Facebook page uh, and Instagram. Uh, And please also check out uh, Jepson's and uh, alumni relations websites for more information so you can see what's going going to come up uh, next. And then I'd like to thank our colleagues in alumni relations, Megan Dooley and Laura Krajewski uh, for organizing this event. Uh, It's been a joy to uh, be part of it. Um, I'm delighted that our uh, Jepson alumni were able to give us some really good insights and I hope you all have a great evening. So thanks very much signing off. Hope to see you soon. Go spiders.